Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really happy to be here, get to preach. I don't know about you, but does anyone have that feeling right now in the back of their eyes or maybe in their head? That is the feeling of the worst day of the year. Yes. Someone last night came into our houses and stole an hour from us while we were sleeping. That's, it's a shame. And on a sun, like Sunday morning? Why not even Saturday? That's so much easier. And I, I, I could see a situation where, it being the worst day of the year, a particular someone could perhaps commit a parking violation. And I just said that, and someone's going, I don't think I'm supposed to park where I'm supposed to park right now. Um, but I could see that happening. Maybe you didn't see the blue sign that says handicap parking only, or you parked in, there's a red curb or something. I could see it happening, because today's the, the worst day of the year. And I could see, you go, see that person go out to the car and see the little paper ticket, and they'd say, ah, oh, come on. Like, I was only here for a little bit. I didn't really mean to park there. I didn't see that sign. I didn't see that curb. There's circumstances. I'm going I'm to get this taken care of. It'll be fine. So the next day on Monday, after the worst day of the year, when, with all the traffic and all the craziness on the streets, they go to the courthouse, and in their mind they're thinking, I have circumstances. I, this doesn't usually happen to me. I should be able to just talk talk my way out of this, it's completely reasonable that I don't need to pay this. And on their way there, they see the car coming up behind them, driving fast, and they cut to the left lane, and they pass them quickly, and they cut to the right lane. And what's the guy do? These people! Oh, they're driving like crazy. They're reckless driving. Don't they know there are rules? There are rules in this country. You're not supposed to drive recklessly. And he gets angry at that person. Then he gets off on the exit and he's out the light and someone runs the red light. Unbelievable. Don't people know? That, that's, people are terrible. He's running red lights and then he sees a kid skateboarding. Oh, stinking kids. There's reasons we put the little rivets on the bars so you can't skateboard on them. Don't people know the rules? And he, he's walking and he, he grabs a coffee before he goes to the courthouse and he hears someone talking about filing their taxes and somehow writing off their entire house payment as a business expense. Don't people know that's cheating? Everyone is broken and evil and terrible. The judge will understand that I did not mean to park there. And should this guy be surprised when he goes to the court and says, I didn't mean to, I don't always park in handicapped spots, should he be surprised when he gets the full weight of the law on his violation? No. Not at all, because every time he points at someone, he's confirming that the law is true, he's appealing to the authority of the law, and saying, you shouldn't do that, you're all evil people, well, except for me, it's just a parking ticket. He's literally condemning himself on his way to the courthouse to prove his innocence. And this morning, Paul is going to talk to that particular tendency that we, especially religious people, have. That temptation 
to point at the infractions of others, the uh, missteps of others, and ignore our own, or even the tendency to point at the flaws in others and never point them to a kind Savior. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to see that even the religious are without escape apart from God's kindness. There's no upper class of people. There's no moral crowd. There's no good crowd. There's not good guys and bad guys. There's not the ones that have figured it out. Even the religious are without escape apart from God's kindness. So last week we were in chapter 1 of Romans in which Paul explained that all of mankind, everyone on the face of the earth, as a whole decided to exchange the truth of God, give it up and grab a lie instead. The king of the universe for the contents of the universe. The creator for the created, God for something that God made. We said these things are better. And in that exchange, we set up things, people, material, status, family, anything other than God as something worthy to be exalted, worshipped, invested in, sacrificed for. And Paul tells us that God gave us up. As though God said, fine, why don't you pursue that lesser thing and see how it works out? Why don't you go engage with that and see how it does at being God? See if it can fulfill you or satisfy you or ultimately and finally bring you good, bring you joy. And chapter 1 concludes with a long list of practices that come about when we were given over to what we wanted. Um, in chapter, at the end of chapter 1 it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They, mankind who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Things are not going well. There's evil and even the approval of evil. Yeah, go do that thing. It's a good thing to do. And Paul turns to chapter 2 where we're going this morning and he sets up a teaching moment. He begins, it's called a diatribe. It's a literary term which refers to anticipating an argument or a conversation or a back and forth that's about to be had and writing it all down on paper as if that conversation was going to happen. So Paul is anticipating um, objections or a conversation that would have happened with the people he's writing to and he's just going to write it all out. It goes all the way into chapter 3. But he starts this morning and he doesn't take the stance of an antagonist fighting an enemy he takes the stance of a teacher wanting to teach a student. So that's what's going to be in chapter 2. Let's read, read the first five verses. That's our text for this morning. Chapter 2, 1 through 5, Romans starts out right after this long list of bad, all these things that deserve death. In chapter 2 of Romans, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge... Practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. First off, who, who is he even talking to? Who is this, per, this stand-in that he is, he's thinking through in his mind, they're going to have this objection, they're going to think about this, they're going to have this excuse. Who is he talking to? We know that Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. Um, verse, or chapter 1 talks about to those loved by God and called to be saints. Um, we know in Rome that there were a population of Jewish believers and there would have been Gentile believers there as well. Um, and the way he will talk about the problem and, and how he talks through chapter 2 and 3 he assumes a prior understanding of the law, of the scriptures, of the Old Testament, um, and a judgmental perspective towards those who don't follow it. So when, when Romans was written, the, new, the good news of the gospel had been around for barely 20 years. So the, the, the predominant religious group would have been the Jews at that time. They had the scriptures before um, the Gentiles. They knew who God was. They were interacting before Jesus showed up, and they would have been the ones that knew stuff before the Gentiles did. So his main thrust, his main student, is the, are the Jews in this particular passage. And that's the particular focus. But his general focus is anybody that sets themselves up as a moral authority. Anyone that says, I have the right answers, and I know the way things ought to be done, and you're doing it all the wrong way. I have the right set of rules. I know what we're supposed to do. So for us, for me, for you, fellow brothers and sisters, anyone that's walked with Jesus for a long time, anyone that's been within the walls of a church for a long time, anyone that is well acquainted with the stories or well acquainted with the attributes of people that have changed hearts by the Holy Spirit, and you know those attributes and you can look out and go, oh, you don't have that and you don't have that and you don't have that. He's talking to us too. He's talking to us. We are very prone to point the finger at people. We are very prone to expect redeemed action out of people when they don't know Jesus. So he's talking to us. We are the same type of religious folk that fall into this tendency to judge, judge others. And we'll see that we lose proper perspective. So Paul needs to teach us. We need to listen this morning because he's talking to us. Even the religious are without escape apart from God's kindness. So Paul starts out, what are you doing? He says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. Paul comes in pretty hot, pretty heated. He says, I have this list of evil I just wrote down and even the approval of those evil things. And they all deserve death. And he says, because of that, you have no excuse. It is inexcusable. And he points to everyone who judges. And I've, I've been there. I can point that finger at myself. I'm sure if you're honest in your own mind, you can go, no, that's, that's been me. And he says, for when you point the finger at someone else and say evil, you are confirming 
and condemning yourself. He's, he's saying, what, what are you thinking? You, you're pointing at the, these people that are doing things in the list of evil. You have your own things in the list of evil that you've done. And whenever you do that, you confirm the list, you appeal to the authority of the list, and you condemn yourself. You, you don't have any excuse. And you, you might be saying, yeah, but Eric, I don't, I don't know if you just remember what you just read, but it talks about homosexuality in the list. It talks about people hating God. I don't hate God. It talks about murder. And Eric, that, that is the results of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's pretty bad. And I would remind us, who else remembers what's on the list? Gossip. Foolishness. This is my favorite. Disobedient to parents. Like a huge list, and you just put that at the end, and every, all right, we're all in the list. Okay, there we go. And do you know what that is? That's the results of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Same thing. That's pretty bad stuff. It's the same list. So without realizing it, we hone our particular portion of the list and say, this is the really bad stuff. And this, this other one is, it's not really that bad. And I'm going to put this over here. And I'm, I'm actually just going to forget it's even on the list most of the time. But I'm going to see the faults in other people and I'm going to point them out and I'm going to conveniently ignore the parts of the list that involve me. And every time we point at someone, we appeal to the authority of the list and we condemn ourselves in the same breath that we condemn them. And we condemn them to death, right? These things deserve death. We don't have any excuse. We do the same things. He continues on, in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul sets this up and starts giving them responses. He basically says, here's what's true. Are you missing it? The first one, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's talking to insiders at this point. He's talking to people that know the scripture. He's, he's putting forth a truth statement and assuming that his religious brothers will say, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, we know that God's judgment is right. Basically, if God calls something evil, that thing is evil. If God calls something good, that thing is good. And if he punishes a particular evil, he's going to do it appropriately and to the right amount and the right degree. It's going to be legitimate. God is a righteous judge. And, and the, the Jews that know the scriptures or the Gentile believers that are now reading the scriptures, they're going to read this and go, yeah, I, I agree with that. I know the scriptures. They would think back to Exodus where God describes who he is, his name, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty. There is right judgment there. They'd think to the Psalms where God is described as a righteous judge. They'd think to Isaiah where God is described as judging in righteousness. And the same themes are picked up in the New Testament in Thessalonians and Revelation. They would say, yeah, I agree with that. Paul's giving them something to agree with. And he appeals to common knowledge as an insider religious person. We know the scriptures. 
But maybe you're sitting there, you're a little bit skeptical. You've, this can feel like an insider sermon, especially if you're an outsider or if you've been on the other side of what's happening in chapter 2. And maybe you, you're thinking, I don't, I don't know that I can just accept that statement. I don't know if that's true. I don't know... I don't know that I trust that God is a good God and, will, and, and seeks to give good to me. I don't know that that's true. If you're sitting in that spot, can I just encourage you to ask those questions? Lean into that. If you're not sure about it, don't just simply reject out of hand. Engage in this church. Engage in a life group. Ask those questions. Lean into your doubts. Doubt your doubts. And be willing to, to give it a shot. See if God, give God a chance to explain himself to you. And I would appeal, at the very least, everyone believes that there is some list of things that we should not do. Verse 32 talks about that. We know God's righteous decree. And we even accept some small portion of that, that we, oh, of course this is injustice. Of course we shouldn't do this thing. And that's, I think that's just imprinted on the psyche of mankind. There's, there's pieces we all accept. I was I was reading this weekend about um, Joseph Kony's army in Africa, and, and he would take little boys and brainwash them and make them fight, uh, make them fight in a war. And it was a, an article about trying to rescue those boys who are now men out of that army. And no one's going to say, "Oh, that's okay." That's that's a common one. We all agree with that one. You don't take little boys and make them shoot people. We know that one. There's, there's some bit, and just like the religious people, if you're an outsider, you have um, a truncated list, just like we do. And God is claiming that every, everyone in mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And if that's true, the very way we think about things is truncated or skewed or broken. Consider your own perspective. Consider your own assumptions. And I would encourage you to just jump in. And if you want to ask questions, you can ask me questions. Elders at the end of the service, join a life group and say, I don't know what's going on. I'm trying to figure it out. We want to help you figure it out. Paul continues in verse 3. He, he, he puts up another question that someone may, may be thinking. He says, do you suppose, oh man, and he describes who this guy is, or who this woman is, or who this religious person is. You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that's the person. Do you think you will escape the judgment of God? So he continues this debate with the student. He's trying to teach them. He says, do you think you're going to escape? You agree with the judgment of God. You agree that God is righteous. You agree that he's going to judge someone appropriately and punish them appropriately. You are appealing to the validity of the list. Do you think you're going to escape? Because if you're doing that, 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 that may be an assumption you're doing. Do you think you're going to get away with it? And I think what Paul is doing here is trying to help the student think through all the ramifications, all of his assumptions of their actions, because we do this all the time, right? We, we just spout something off or we say something and we don't think about what the ramifications are. We don't think about logically what we're doing. We're, we're pointing at, at the guy that cut us off in traffic you deserve to go to prison for, for doing that. And you, you cut off seven people behind you. You didn't realize that. It's the same thing. We don't think about what we're doing. We just we say the rude thing or we, we judge someone for their actions and we don't fully think about the fact that we're condemning ourselves. 
And what makes, what makes you think you are going to escape the good and righteous judgment of God? Just because you grew up in church? Or because you've been surrounded by Christians your whole life? Or because you have remained unstained by the evil of the list? Well, well some of the evil of the list, some of the time, mostly, all but one. Well, usually, usually I remain unstained by the evil. You're the same. I'm the same. We're in the same boat. Everyone's exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I would encourage you, like Paul is doing here, to think about the judgment of God. We're so prone and ready to point the finger, point the finger, condemn here, condemn there. When that happens, take a moment, consider what you deserve, and ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart of judging and give you a heart that's more ready to point to rescue from danger rather than just the results of not being in a relationship with God. Point to rescue instead. We go, that's evil, that deserves death, that deserves death. The whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Why don't you point to rescue instead? We have Jesus. Consider how you point. Because you're not going to escape either if if you're right. Verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's another another possibility. You might think you, you can escape, or you're just presuming on God's kindness. You're presuming on God's patience. You're presuming on God's forbearance, which is literally waiting. The forbearance means waiting for you to repent. I'm giving you time to repent. He says, maybe, maybe that's what you're thinking about. Maybe that's how you're going on doing this judging thing. Maybe God will just be nice. Maybe I've walked a morally sufficient walk and he will continue to be patient with me. It's gone this far, maybe I can keep going. But that cuts against the very claim that God is a righteous God, a righteous judge. It's the guy walking into the courthouse, condemning everyone and thinking, well, I have circumstances, the judge will let the rules slide this time because he's kind and patient. He better get everyone else, but it's okay for me. And Paul says, don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is being kind to you as he waits. You have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and God has a patient kindness toward you that is meant to encourage you to repent. Encourage you. Repentance is turning from where you're going, turning back to God. And God's being kind to you. God's being patient to you. And unfortunately, with a lot of religious-minded people like me and like some of you, in the midst of patience, in the midst of God waiting for us, instead of turning to God and, and, and moving toward Him whenever we realize there's a list and I'm part of it, we point fingers at people. We look at everybody else's exchanges and we think, those are pretty bad exchanges. Does, it, does everyone else see how bad these exchanges are? And we don't even think about the fact we do the same thing. And I would encourage us again, whenever that arises, whenever you think to point at someone, just stop for a moment and think about your own sin. Think about your own exchanges. Think about your own exchanging God for a lie. 
and use it as an opportunity to turn back to Jesus. We, we lack a rhythm of confession and repentance, um, and yet we often wander. Come now, Fount, the great song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If you're, if you're honest with yourself, we, we know the gospel's true and good, but sometimes we, I'm, I'm going to go over here, because there are particular exchanges that we're just attracted to. And this exchange will always be attractive to me. And it will always have a draw to me. And, and sometimes we, we, we wander away from Jesus. We wander away from the gospel and we start engaging in this exchange. We engage in our particular part of the list because it, we're attracted to it. It's hard to give it up. And I would encourage you, if, if that's where you are, when that desire to judge or point someone else's out, remember your own and run back to Jesus. I I turn the same way just like that person. Run back to Jesus. I would encourage you, uh, James talks about confessing our sins to one another because in that there is healing. I would encourage you to be vulnerable with your fellow Christians. Be vulnerable with the people in your life group and say, this exchange that I do is super attractive to me and it's really hard to avoid it. It's really hard to keep that over there. And I need to be reminded of the gospel, reminded that God is good and is kind and patient to us. Because I keep, I keep running over here and I need help, brothers and sisters. I need help. Tell your people. Be vulnerable with your people. They have different exchanges that they need help with too. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So, we have time. Run to Jesus. The last verse, verse 5, Paul is saying, if you don't embrace God's kindness, here are the results. Here is what you're doing. Here is what will happen. Verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, that word means not desiring to repent, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He tells his student, he tells the person he cares for and is trying to help understand the gospel. He says, your judgmental behavior as a religious person pointing out the rules, pointing out, pointing out people's evil, that's betraying a hard heart. That's showing that you have a hard heart. A heart that doesn't want to repent and doesn't want to return back to Jesus. If you're just practicing avoiding some of the behavior on the list and judging others, that's just an unrepentant heart. That kind of heart and those kind of activities are storing up wrath. Wrath being anger against unrighteousness. Proper anger against evil. Paul says you're just storing it up. Typically, storing up in the Bible is is a positive thing. You're storing up riches or you're storing up rewards. And I have this big pile of rewards. And you could almost see them reading this. Oh, storing up wrath. Oh, oh. It says, talk about digging, digging yourself a hole. You, just, you want a shovel, buddy? You keep digging yourself a hole. You're, you're piling up and there's just this big mound of anger, of wrath against your unrighteousness. You're storing it up. That's a terrifying picture. That doesn't make me feel excited and happy. That's, that's, that's a terrifying picture. Every time you're putting more on that pile, you're digging yourself into a hole. The the pile's getting bigger and bigger. And Paul is saying in verse 5, the day is coming. God's patience isn't forever. 
The day of wrath is coming. Um, the, the end of this verse is literally the day of wrath, the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This day is coming when that will be revealed. This day, the patience will end and God will show up. The day will come. God will reveal himself as what we know he is, a righteous judge, and he's going to point out evil as evil and he will punish accordingly and he will expose the lies. He will point out our exchanges and say, you exchanged me for this thing. That's a scary picture. In Revelation 19, John has a picture of Jesus showing up on the day, this day of wrath, this day of the, the revealing of the righteous judgment of God. And in, in Revelation 19, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, there he is again, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a terrifying picture. John sets up this picture, and if you're thinking about your participation in the list of evil, the list of the exchanges of the truth of God for a lie, this is a terrifying picture. Paul is saying, the day is coming, the day of wrath is coming. John says, Jesus is coming on a horse, there's fire in his eyes. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. You can see it's just this picture of the grapes in the big basin and he is treading it out so that the grape juice flows. And if you are honest with yourself, I'm included in that list. The list of exchanging, the list of evil. And I've confirmed God is a righteous judge. I've pointed at people confirming that and I'm condemning myself. The things I have done deserve death. We've all done the same thing. And this is a day that Paul is pointing to that should, should scare us a little bit. If we're just pointing at other people and trusting in our own stuff, this should scare us. God as a judge is coming in the day of the revelation of his righteous judgment, the day of the revealing of the making clear, and it is an intense and awesome picture. But in the present, we sit in God's patience and what ought we to do? We ought to turn to repentance. We ought to turn back to God. And I love that he, even in this picture of, of the, the revealing of the righteous judge, the revealing of the king, the revealing of the warrior God, the revealing of the wrath of God, even in that picture, it says Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. And that should spark in our minds the fact that Jesus bled. Jesus bled. And in Mark 14, one of the Gospels of Jesus that tell the story of Jesus' life, there's a point where the crowds are, are seeking to condemn him to death. And they say, unjustly, he deserves death. Which points right back to 
Romans 1 where it says those things they do deserve death. They are unjustly saying he deserves death. They, have all, they also exchanged the truth of God for a lie just like we did. And they're pointing and saying Jesus deserves death. And the kind and patient Savior Jesus took our death for us. The kind and patient Savior Jesus took preemptively the wrath of God on the cross from us. That's what happened on the cross. He died the death we deserved. He took the wrath we deserved. And he died. And he laid dead in a tomb for our sins, for our evil, for our exchanges. But death could not hold him. And God raised him from the dead as the triumphant conqueror of evil and the one who can at the same time righteously judge evil and apply his death to our evil. And what do we do? We should take advantage of the kindness and patience of God because he is being patient with us before he reveals his judgment. And while he's being patient, we should run to the kind and patient Savior because we have, if we don't, there's a pile of wrath that we have stored up for ourselves as we practice the exchange of God for a lie, as we practice those results that show what we've done. An appropriate response to this patience is not continued judging of evil, um, just pointing around as religious hypocrites, but instead embracing the kindness of Jesus as ones that know we deserve death. And that embrace of his kindness, when that day comes, that, that terrifying day when Jesus shows up, we will not shake in fear because of our sins have been found out and the wrath of God has been stored up against us. But instead, when Jesus shows up, our kind and patient Savior shows up. We get to scream in triumph when the Savior shows up. We get to shout songs of worship because our Savior has finally come. We embraced Him when He was patient with us and we don't need to be scared of His judgment. We get to rejoice in His coming because He's a good and gracious Savior. I love that. We will be saints, cleansed from our evil, and we will praise him as King of kings and Lord of lords, like it says at the end of that passage. If you are someone who has exchanged, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, run to the kind and patient God who dies for us. If you think you're, you have your act together and point at others in judgment and you're realizing that that's a tendency you have, you condemn yourself Run to the kind and patient Savior. If you are realizing the frequency frequency with which you turn from God and turn to your exchanges and turn to the things that are attractive to you, run to the kind and patient Savior. Engage in this church. Engage in fellow believers. Confess to fellow believers. Begin a rhythm of repentance. We all need help. Even the religious are without escape apart from God's kindness. But, thank God we have a kind and patient Savior, God, and Judge. It's good. In just a little bit, we're going to respond in gospel-saturated songs that will help us tune our hearts to respond appropriately to this good news that Jesus is patient with us and good and willing to save us. Um... There's an opportunity for you at the front during those songs to be prayed for. If 
this passage has triggered something in your mind and you're realizing something and you th- I, I have questions to ask or someone needs to pray for me, just come up and be prayed for. There's opportunity for you. If, if there's something else completely unrelated that you need prayer for, please come up. Maybe, maybe this is the worst day of the year for you and it has nothing to do with losing an hour of sleep. Um, there's, a, there's an opportunity to be prayed for. So let, us, let me pray for all of us and we will respond to God's good news together. Lord, I thank you for being... I thank you for being patient with me. I've exchanged the truth of God for a lie so many times. And I thank you for being patient with me and giving me an opportunity for repentance. I, I, I ask that you would help all of us realize that we are sitting in patience right now. We are sitting in your patience. You are, are giving us forbearance. You're giving us opportunity to repent. You want none of us to perish and you want us to repent and follow Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that when we point the finger, you would help us realize that we are only confirming that we deserve to die. And I pray that instead of pointing out just the evil, that you would point out, that you would help us to point out rescue for people. That you'd help us to get close enough to people that we can talk to them about the kind and patient judge who is forbearing for us. Give us that kind of attitude, that kind of heart. And give us, give us a rhythm of repentance when we are prone to wander and prone to go back to those things. Um, make the gospel look all the more good, all the more majestic and wonderful and worth embracing. And help us to help our friends as we try to embrace the gospel with everything and not turn towards those exchanges. Thank you for your graciousness. Amen.